Hello and welcome to the Financial Independence UK podcast. Join your hosts, Tom and Alex, as we talk about wealth creation, financial planning and personal development, specifically for the UK. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the FI UK podcast. Today, I'm interviewing a medical doctor based in the UK called Dr. Hung. We're going to talk about her fire journey, uh, what she's learned from it, um, and just generally get a good picture of, of why she's chosen this path. And hopefully it'll bring uh, a lot of value to you guys. So, uh, Dr. Hung, if you could introduce yourself and we'll get started. Hi, my name's Dr. Hung. I'm a 35-year-old emergency and intensive care doctor in London. Okay, that sounds um, firstly very stressful as a job. And I just wanted to begin by by just saying thank you as a collective from all of our listeners and me for the work you've done uh, for the NHS. Really appreciate it. Um, it's not something I could do myself. So firstly, thank you very much kind of for that. So if you could begin, just tell us about why why you chose the FIRE kind of journey and, and how you found it. Um, let me give you a bit of a background to, to how I arrived in my journey. So my, my family moved over from Asia and they were quite, we were quite poor when we grew up. So I was, grew up on council estate. My father was a cook in a Chinese restaurant. My mother did minimal wage jobs working in doing a bit of sewing and working in laundry. And I had two older siblings as well. So money was always a struggle. I grew up never having anything new. So anytime we needed to buy any food for the family, it always came from the reduced section. And we had to use the street markets on the Saturday towards the end of the day where foods and fruits and vegetables were always cheaper. And then anytime we needed any utensils for the household, um, such as any extra plates and cups and things like that, we'd have to go to a car boot sale on Sundays to buy them on the cheap. We didn't really have any fun days out growing up. Everything had to basically cost nothing. So it would be a walk in a park, a cycle around the neighbourhood. I'd take some leftover stale bread to feed the ducks. Or I'd just end up spending my time in a public library as we just didn't have any money. And my family had really quite large debts to pay because my father had quite a bad gambling problem, which impacted us throughout my whole childhood. And so... Even up to the age of 17, I'd never had a birthday party, which I feel is quite sad. And then in school, I had to actually approach some teachers during primary and secondary school to actually tell them, I know the assignment is to talk about where I went on holiday, but I've actually never been on holiday. My family's just too poor. And so having that in the background, it's, it's quite unusual that I ended up on a fire journey because seeing how poor my parents were when I grew up. By the age of seven, I had actually already asked my parents to open my own bank account. So I ended up going to Aber National, having my first bank book, and I put my pocket money in there. And then fast forward a few more years, I, I remember seeing past these big posters in Aber National Bank, uh, which is now called Santander. And they would say, um, have you had a financial review? Do you want to talk to someone about your finances? And I was about 13, 14 at that time. I was wandering past these posters until I finally mustered up the courage to go up to one of the people at the health desk and ask them for a financial review. And so there I was sitting there at the age of 13, 14, asking them about how can I open a junior ISA. And then from then on, I had a yearly financial review. And I was probably the youngest person they'd ever seen actually approach the bank staff to ask for a financial review so frequently. And over the, those years, I managed to get involved with learning about what bonds were, how to maximise my, my junior ISA, how to move on to the adult ISA and to move on to fixed rate bonds. And that really helped me over the years to try and just save a little bit of my pocket money so that I had something for the rainy day as as, a, as my family just didn't have any extra money to support me and to help me if I needed anything new. Wow. So that, to me, is it's a story of necessity of having to learn about finances rather than, than a choice, perhaps, uh, through your kind of early years. Um, and I can I, I work in addictions myself at the moment, so I can appreciate how difficult 
it would be growing up with a, a parent or caregiver um, having having an addiction, an addictive uh, issue like that. What really sticks out to me, though, is you say it's you're not a likely person to be on the fire journey, but this kind of thing gives you the ability to self-manage it. And, and that takes away a lot of the anxiety because it's within your own control because you've learned it all the way up from your early teenage years. I think I don't think I ever even set foot in a bank when I was 14. My earliest memory of going into a, a bank or building society was, I think I was 18, maybe, possibly 19, something like that. Um, and it all comes together. Your your kind of story there comes together to really promote good financial lessons, which I think you've had to learn really young and that they can be difficult to learn at that age, but they're clearly setting you in, in really good stead kind of moving forward. Absolutely. The older I got, as I headed towards finishing my secondary school education, money became a massive factor on deciding where I could study for university and whether I could actually afford to go to university as well. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of people in in the Western culture uh, attending university or higher education is is expected. Really, it's not that you you have to work out whether you can go. It's just people think about where they want to go not if they can go it's quite a reflection to, to think about there are people in the, in the world who have to choose if they can go not just when or where talking quickly about your your education obviously you've been been through medical school i i don't have any idea of kind of the costs of that i, I only know my own degree which was fortunately funded by the, the uk government uh, and my general living expenses, but is there anything specific to medicine that you that you wouldn't really find in a um, non medical degree? So medicine's a little bit more complicated, just on the basis that the duration of your course is virtually double the length of any other university course that you can study for. And generally, most of the medical schools tend to be in big cities, so you're not going to be able to find a discount by finding a cheaper med school. So that's definitely one of the biggest issues. Yeah, am I right in thinking it's um, seven years for medical school or am I way off? So there is a variation. So if you come into medicine having done a previous degree in virtually any other subject, if you're lucky enough, you can go on a fast track programme and you can get through it in four years. The general length of time is five to six years across the whole of the United Kingdom. So it's quite a commitment to study for that length of time in, um, well, I'm my understanding of it, but it's not not easy. It's not a walk in the park at all. There's an awful lot kind of the, that that degree entails on top of working to learn as well. I know you'll be expected to do days, weekends, nights uh, on top. So it's definitely not something for the faint-hearted. I, th- I think for those people who want to go to medical school, they, they usually manage to hack it out and it all works out. For those who have ended up going because someone else has made them or have told them to go, they usually don't survive the whole course programme. It's because it's just the wrong place for them. And that usually they usually get filtered out quite quickly. That does make a lot of sense. I think you have to, if, if you want to do something like that, you need to do it because you want to do it, not because you're, you're being told by other people you want to do it. We're just doing it for the prestigious kind of title of being a doctor. Um, I think it will very quickly, um, you'll very quickly learn that it's it's not something just to be done. Um, it's not an easy, yeah, easy kind of task. So if we're thinking about monetary costs of, of being a doctor, I mean, I, as a, as a nurse, have, a, have some registration fees. They're about £120 a year plus a, a union kind of thing on top. So it it's around about two to three hundred pounds a year to kind of stay registered and to and to work in in the field. Is that similar for medicine, or is it? Am I again way off? Sadly, you have gone way off. Unfortunately, in my profession, particularly in the type of specialties that I work in, um, there are there are far more costs than say another specialty, mainly because I'm dealing with adults, children, major mass disasters pre-hospital um i have to be able to manage airways and also have to deal with trauma which won't be a factor in other people's training depending on what specialty they're in so currently for me if it's a bad year as a lot of qualifications that we do have to be re-certified every four years i could end up spending 
up to about 5,000 per year just to be able to have the privilege to be working continually as a doctor as I need all of my courses um, to be valid and in date. And that's a significant sum to put aside each year just to be in the job. And so whilst it sounds like a big amount, let me break it down so that the listeners can actually understand where this money goes. So um, firstly, as a doctor, we all need to have our license um, under the General Medical Council. And so we have to be on the register and that's an annual payment. As doctors, we also have to have medical indemnity in case someone tries to then sue us. And it also covers us as part insurance if we do any work abroad or out of a hospital setting. Um, And that comes under medical protection societies. And also some people choose to also pay into the British Medical Association as well for support. As an emergency doctor, I also have to make sure that I have my advanced life support, my paediatric life support, my advanced trauma life support certificates up to date. I then have to have my mass disaster, mass casualty trauma type certificates also valid and in date, as well as child protection, um, general instructors courses. Courses also also for things like skills, which come under um, ultrasound techniques, echo, um, which other specialties don't actually need to pay into because it's, it's not a huge part of their job. But in emergency settings, all of these skills are necessary just to keep people alive as time is very critical. I then have to be under my Royal College, so I pay fees into the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And then yearly we have conferences, and so you would then have to pay conference fees. And if, like me, you tend to want to do more than just one specialty, as I want to also do intensive care with emergency medicine, I'm then having to face the brunt of having to pay fees into the Intensive Care Society the European Intensive Care Medicine Society fees and then their conferences. And then they have their separate courses that we need to do for airway transfers. And that doesn't even take into account the cost of sitting exams for two specialties and then paying for the question banks, the books, the exam revision courses, and actually going to sit the exams. And most of all of these things that you pay for extra, you're doing out of your free time. So none of these courses happen during your work time. And so it's a huge sacrifice to make on top of paying a huge amount extra just to be in the profession. It also takes a huge chunk of your time, which other people don't necessarily understand unless they're in the medical profession. Yeah, that's, that's an awful lot. It's a lot more than I thought there would be. And just to put that into kind of some perspective, I've got friends who live uh, in the UK, in the Midlands, whose, whose mortgage payments for the entire year are less than £5,000. And that's that's you literally staying staying afloat and being able to work, you know, in, in the medical industry. It's, it's certainly a lot more than, than than I pay to be to be a registered nurse. Um, it's humbled me quite a lot. Um, a lot of the courses there that you've just mentioned, I, I, I don't do. I've, I've not, I'm not trained or qualified to do them. There's some of them that we share, so kind of child protection, immediate life support, but you know, everything else is way over and above. And as well, you said you, you do a lot of these in your own time, so they're not paid for. Um, you don't get your time kind of reimbursed. But does does your employer pay, like repay you, reimburse you for your like GMC registration or any of the insurances, or is it literally all out of your own pocket? It is all out of your own pocket. If you, on the other hand, hold what we call a training number, you can get up to about seven to eight hundred pounds reimbursed each year. But if one life support course will cost you 650 the money they're offering you doesn't really cover you at all, to be honest. No, it's less than 20%, isn't it, of the total for the whole? Um, Particularly the- with the amount of extra paperwork you have to do to beg for the money back. It's, yeah. it's really not necessarily worth it. Wow, goodness. Okay. That's, that's a really excellent roundup, actually. And I've actually learned an awful lot from that. I didn't have any idea that medical staff had to go through um, all of those things, really. I knew it was difficult, but I didn't realise there was that much involved. So through, through, through your training and your, your student kind of time, did you, did you take loans at that point? Did you um, have any other kind of methods of funding it? Did you self-fund or work through it? Um, how, how did it work for you? So I knew going into medical school, I was going to be completely broke. So I did a very unconventional thing for someone from an Asian background. I went and took a gap year. 
And so I, I went to work as a healthcare assistant in an intensive care unit. Um, and then I spent the other half of that gap year going to India to work in surgery. And so in the time that I was working, I was just doing very long double shifts just to sort of bank away as much money as I possibly could before I went to India for, my, for the rest of my gap year. And then when I finally did start medical school, I have to say, I, I didn't really have any money left because I spent it on my gap year, just traveling. Um, and so I actually started my first day at medical school with minus 57 pounds in my bank account. And I was still with Santander at that point. I took out the full student loan and I ended up on plan one because I entered medical school in 2005 to 2006 which meant for me that my loan would be written off at the age of 65, which meant I probably had about 40 working years where I'd be paying off this loan. I tried to save as much money of the loan payments that came into my account three times a year. But even then, money was really tight because I was renting in London and studying in London. And just due to where my medical school was, some of the hospitals we were attached to were on the other side of the country. So I'm talking places like Hastings, Chichester, Paul, like really Margate, very far out places, um, which you'd need to be able to get to. And in that time where you're not on those placements, you'd then be sort of trying to decide, do I want to have rent in two places or could I drive so that I don't have to have rent in two places? Because not all of the hospitals would give you free accommodation during those placements. So it was, it was quite difficult to try and work out finances during that time. I had a very strict budget. I basically told myself I have X amount of money, which means if I screw up, I don't have anyone to help me. So I made the decision at that time when I entered medical school that I was never going to buy lunch. I was never going to buy coffee. I'd never buy a croissant for breakfast on the way to a lecture. I just did some calculations and I just thought an extra five to 10 pounds spent per day. I just don't have that money and it accumulates so quickly. So I would make sure that I'd buy my food discounted. I'd rock up to every supermarket around 9pm each day where all the discounted goods would be out and I would shop there. And then I'd stick to very basic foods to keep my sort of food allowance about £10 a week, which is unimaginable for some people. But when you break it down, it would be one bag of pasta, 99 pence, and that's 500 grams. I'd have a bottle of soy sauce, which is probably 89 pence for a litre. And then I'd have bags of frozen vegetables like peas, which are for one kilo you'd get for 99 pence. And I'd sort of just rotate the same basic staples over and over again, just so that I'd make sure I'd have enough money to enjoy a, a normal student life. Because I, I had made the decision when I went to med school school that I wanted to continue doing sports like rowing. Rowing is not a cheap sport. <laughs> so your general fees for buying your rowing kit already be about 300 at least when you kit yourself out for the winter and then just having the fees to pay for entry to a boathouse and then to actually be part of the boat club it, it adds up and then gym memberships on top of that so I had to tell myself it's give and take I can't have everything and so if I just restrict my diet and my shopping expenditure and cut all transport costs by walking everywhere even if it takes me an hour to get somewhere then I'll just do it and that's basically what I did for those years and I managed to actually come out of university somehow with the same amount of money that I borrowed from the government. I managed to bank it away in cash prices and just mainly because I bought, I had applied for bursaries throughout my medical school years. So I'd write these essays, try and get some awards. I'd try and do a part-time job when I could, when the semester wasn't too busy. So I'd take on a caring job where I did three hours work for some disabled people each week and that would give me a bit of money and then for the university I would work as an ambassador for them and so I do open day tours for new students and people visiting and then I also did um typing of website content for um the medical elective websites and so I'd write about places that um other med students could go to in order to spend their medical electives abroad and to get different experiences and for that I'd get payments um just small amounts of money for that and which I would then bank away and save and I managed to find out that there were ways to get free medical textbooks by just signing up with the medical publishers and just 
asking them for a book list, which is any book that you actually need. They send it to you, you write a review, and the books are yours for free. And I just monetized that during my university days so that I never had to buy a textbook. And so once I've written a review, I was technically selling the books on. And that really helped me to just get through medical school without completely going bankrupt and still having a really good medical school experience. Goodness me, that's that's a really insightful and actually comes across as there's an awful lot of sacrifice in there. So you've you've had this goal in in the future is to finish medical school without heaps and heaps of debt. You've had a good look at what's feasible and what you can actually do, where, where you can save money. Um, I didn't know you could review books to get to get free textbooks. If I did, I'd have certainly done that through my degree. I remember spending hundreds of pounds on books for assignments and I'd literally use them a handful of times and then I'd resell them again for half the money that I paid for them. So that's that's really valuable. And I think if anybody's listening to this could make, make use of that, um, yeah, then pl- please do. I'm just curious whether any of these lessons that you, that you went through at that point, do they currently shape your life or have you managed to adjust to your current lifestyle? That's a really good question. So I was always aware throughout medical school that I noticed that my peers were experiencing lifestyle inflation. The closer they got to graduation, the closer they thought they'd end up on X amount paycheck when they graduated, they started spending a lot more lavishly. I stuck to the same habits that I had made when I was on my gap year throughout and throughout med- medical school. And so every Saturday, usually it's at the weekend, in the morning, I'd spend an hour going through my finances. To everyone else, probably nothing would have moved that much in a week. But for me, it was just a time where I'd sit down, I'd look at what I'd spent on my Amex card, because I just used it to basically outsource all of my money. Um, so that I could get points in return, so that I could use the points to travel and up, upgrade my my flight seats out of economy. And so I'd still have that practice where each week I'd sit down and go through my finance. If my finances were fine, I'd then spend the rest of that say hour or two looking at what are what are the current rates for the new fixed ices, fixed rate ices, the bond rates, what is the interest rates if I shop around. If I move my bank onto an online bank rather than a high street bank, would I earn more? And then I would fiddle with the numbers and sort of look at what my foreseeable expenditures would be for, say, 10 months down the line. How many countries am I planning to travel to? How much are the flights going to cost? How much do I need to put away so that I can not be living off my credit card when I do suddenly go off to travel? So the habits that I, I had previously, they've followed me through. And it was actually on one of those Saturday mornings when I was sitting down doing my finances in my fourth year at med school. I distinctly remember um, having had a chat with some of my friends about what banks they were banking with during university. And, you know, we, you have a mixture of friends who are med students and friends who are doing all the other sorts of courses. And I found a lot of people were banking with different people. And I noticed that their banks were giving them extra freebies, which I hadn't considered or contemplated because I was too lazy at the time to shop around. And so I felt as if I had been missing out. I heard that NatWest had given out five-year, one-third off rail cards to their students who use, use them for their banking. Um, there are other banks which gave them mobile phone discounts, free upgrades, and bigger overdrafts, overdrafts more than two grand. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm free to shop around. I should move to another bank. And it was at that point... I, had, I made the decision to move from Santander Bank to HSBC because I thought to myself, there's a couple of perks at HBC, HSBC which actually appeal to me. They seem to have really streamlined their advertising to make sure that when you walk into their bank, there's someone who approaches you, asks how they can help you to find you the right place, to advise you, oh, you don't actually need to turn up to put your checks into your bank account. You can literally just take a photo of your checks and just upload it onto your apps or do it electronically, phone it through. There's just there's just so much more information that they were giving me than my previous bank. I thought, HSCC does seem a very decent bank to go to. And what's more, they advertised it in such a way that once you walked into HSBC, you looked upstairs and you could almost see this sort of heavenly gateway, which advertised something called a premier account, a premier lounge. And I just thought, what on earth is that? That sounds like it's quite important or quite special. 
And so I'd end up looking online to try and find out what on earth a premier account was. And I thought to myself, having done some research, wow, they give you free travel insurance. You know, there's a branch of HSBC that's open inside Chinatown. Even on a Sunday, I can do my banking. If I have a premier account, they'll give me a wealth manager. What on earth is that? That sounds amazing. <laughs> and so, so I moved into HSBC Bank with the prime target of trying to get a primary account. And I'm happy to say about a year after graduation, I managed to get a primary account and I'm very happy. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, great stuff. That's, that's really key, isn't it? Because a, a lot of places, institutions, establishments will offer different things to try and win your business. But I think for you, that you mentioned specifically about traveling a couple of minutes ago, if they give you free travel insurance, perfect. It's another cost you don't have to pay. But also um, the discounted train fare, if, if you're traveling um, to different placements and things like that, it can save you a fortune, certainly more than any fees that the account would cost you. Um, and I think that because you've been open to, to looking and digging a little bit deeper into those things, you've then been rewarded with, with a financial savings, but also it's made your life easier, essentially, hasn't it? It's saved you time um, and a lot of effort kind of down, down the line. That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, I just want to dig a little bit more into your your experiences as uh, as a woman, essentially learning in in the UK, and also your thoughts about kind of studying, but also financial education, and and how how those experiences that you've had would they be different for you than me? Possible, and I think that's it's something that I could learn from you and your, and your experience. So, if you're happy just to to touch on those those topics, I'd really appreciate it. So for women, I've, I've always found that the financial education or financial upbringing and access information is significantly different from what men would be exposed to. Women are just generally not sat down by their fathers and given good, solid financial advice throughout childhood and pre, before going into university. There's just no one who talks to you about how do you save What's the difference between an interest rate? Do you know what capital gains tax is? Why should you use an ISA? Do you really need a pension? How are you going to get a pot of money to pay for your deposit for your first house? No one really says anything about that to women, which I don't know whether they just believe that women are not interested or we just don't have the mindset for it. I wasn't very sure. I found there was also the problem between women that they just didn't seem to want to talk about their finances as well. There's a lot of secrecy and a little bit of shame, I noticed, that because a lot, of, a lot of other women I knew who went through university, a lot of them were actually reliant on either their parents who sort of bailed them out, their, their parents would buy them their first car or put down the, their first house deposit for them so that they had their own house as students so they didn't even have to wait to graduate. Um, so they had a lot of help from their parents or they became sort of reliant on the people they were going to be dating or moving in with. And so they couldn't make any financial plan without consulting someone else. So technically their money wasn't necessarily their own and they didn't treat it as a sort of financial footstep for complete independence where you, where you could just protect yourself from all the elements. Because generally women will have to face things in their career, which I don't personally believe men would have to face. Women, women need to consider money to, for childcare, money to take time out to bring out the kids, so that would be a career break, caring duties, whilst no one admits it. Most women probably would have to look after siblings, maybe extended family relations, as well as elderly parents, more so than men. And on top of that, for some unfortunate women, if they don't end up managing to find a spouse at a young age they then need to consider things like freezing their eggs going through fertility treatments later which is not something that anyone would ever imagine at the stage when you go through medical school but even at the first few years of medical school you'll have female consultants who will talk to you and just tell you their horror stories and they'll say don't make the mistake I did please have kids early I'm now a consultant I'm now 37 and I've had to go through three rounds of IVF and it's just been so stressful and terrible and it's cost so much money and we've sacrificed X, Y, Z. 
to get to this stage of our career. And it's, it's been really difficult. And then there's also the other flip side of the coin of people who have got married and then didn't request a prenup and then found out that their spouses were not, didn't have any good financial health or general good budgeting or saving habits. And it really damaged their credit scores. And then if their spouses also did bad things to them, they ended up losing half their assets, which is not something anyone would openly talk about over a coffee when you were just catching up with people. But it's a massive problem if you talk uh, or look into a lot of the information that's available on all of the financial forums, particularly the ones which are only available to women to join. There are a lot of stories of what has happened to people just because they didn't know what they should have done 10 years back. They didn't know that people would change. They didn't, they just honestly believed that their goal in life was graduate, maybe pay off the debt, but definitely get on a housing ladder, form a 2.4 unit where you get married and have two kids, and then maybe be a stay-at-home mom because the husband would probably be earning whilst you bring up the kids, and then you'd try and somehow go back into the career workforce after the kids are old enough to go back into school. And that was generally the lifeline that was sold to most women here in the UK on how things are going to be. And most of the women just accepted that. Yeah, it sounds like there's um, there's some kind of stereotype things going on there. There's also a lot of variables um, as well. And the impression I get I get from you is you're you're not happy to kind of leave things to to variables. You'd rather know with certainty that actually should X, Y, or Z happen, I know I'm going to be okay because I've done the groundwork. I've put all this effort in um, throughout a consistent number of years. And I do think you're right that there is a, a horrible lack of financial education out there, um, which is the main reason we started this podcast, essentially, is to try and teach people the, the basics of finances, but also the stuff that they that will have life-changing effects for them that they don't get taught until perhaps it's too late. Um, you touched upon pensions and savings and interest rates and and the joining of finances when when two people decide to come come together and either get married what the other the other person has done will affect you once once those marriage certificates have been signed and if you don't have a full understanding of that it, it can really damage as you've said it can damage their future uh, kind of credit scores and their general financial health it can have really detrimental effects so i'm a big believer and advocate for open communication especially about finances and health with people who are close to you and and you're right people aren't going to go and have a coffee and say oh, tell me about all the debt that you're in or tell me about your your financial plan for five years or something people are look at look at you like you're insane they'd much rather talk about anything really other than money and i think that's something that, that needs to change a taboo that needs to be broken it's it shouldn't be a shameful topic topic there's uh, a book, I'm not sure if you've, you've read it, I don't know, by Morgan Housel called The Psychology of Money. And he states that there are two things in life that affect everybody, whether that they, they like it or not, is, is money and health. And you seem to have both of those wrapped up really nicely, which is um, just all credit to you, really. In terms of, you mentioned a second ago that there are financial forums available for, for women only. I think it might be quite valuable if if you can, uh, if if you remember the name perhaps of one of those, uh, we could share it with our listeners, and it might it might help somebody out of a a sticky situation. Do, do do you recall the name of that? So rather than using a lot of books when I started out trying to self educate myself about finances, I used a couple of websites, and then from those websites, I moved into the women's forums. So firstly, I want to touch on the names of some of these websites that I used. And they were great starting points to just dip in and dip out to just learn about what finances, um, what the what the lingo is, what the jargon is when they talk about finances and how to save and invest. So there are websites called moneysavingsexpert.com. I found that one very good. Candidmoney.com was helpful. Moneysupermarket.com, monovator.com, mrmoneymustache.com, togoodmoneyguide.com, medicsmoney.co.uk. These were very useful. And then if you go onto Facebook, there's something called Fire UK, Women's Personal Finances on Fire. These are two separate Facebook groups. And there are lots of Reddit groups regarding fire in the UK and ones which are separate for women as well. You can just search within those apps. 
to, to access them and they're all free. It's just the main thing. There's, there's no spamming. Um, they don't ask for your details and you can just dip in and out as you need. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. And I've, I've looked at a couple of those myself, especially Money Saving Expert, um, Monovator as well. And I originally learned about the FIRE movement from Mr. Money Moustache. And I was going to ask you at the end as well whether you'd heard of Medics Money, because I was going to point you in that direction, but you've clearly beaten me to it because you're very much on the ball with uh, everything and anything finance related. So, yeah, just to swing it back to the financial independence, retire early angle. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about your your general thoughts on on fire, whether it's is it achievable just for a certain a certain subgroup of people, or is it is it attainable for everyone? So I heard about fire about three years ago. So I got to that point in my life three years ago, is because I decided I just happened to decide that year that I was going to clean out my student loan. So I'll give you a bit of background. So I was on plan one of the student loan. And that was because I started studying in 2005 to 2006. And the rules from that year group was that the loan was only going to be written off at the age of 65. So that meant 40 years of paying off a loan unless I decided to clean it out myself a lot faster. And during my first year of working, they took out about 300 a month. So that would have been 9% of my salary. And then I noticed looking back of five years on that within four years of student loan repayments, they had charged me almost £4,000 extra in interest. So I, was, I felt as if I had been paying off nothing. So I had graduated with a student loan debt of about 40000 And over four years, they still managed to charge me an extra four grand in interest. And so about three years ago, I decided I'm cleaning this out. So I used all my savings within my cash ISA, everything that I'd earned from my regular savers accounts where they give you two to three percent interest rates per year and I just paid it off and cleaned out my debts which is quite unconventional for a lot of people that I know but I basically figured I had made a contract with the government when I borrowed money so that money was borrowed under the belief that I would be paying it back and so it was my duty to pay it back so I chose to pay it back earlier and so Whilst a lot of people would say it doesn't affect your credit rating, it actually does affect how, you, how much money you have available when you apply to get a mortgage for a house. And that was one caveat, which I think some people underestimated. And so when I actually paid off my student loan debt completely, I actually found that because I'd been working for about seven years by that point, I had a much higher earning power than I at that point than I did when I first started out. So having the extra 9% of my salary every month to just invest and save, it makes a huge amount of difference. And so shortly after actually managing to just pay off my student loan, I suddenly managed to find that I could then save up to 60% of my salary, which is I found was a phenomenal amount of money, which it was not possible before when I had the student loan going through. And that was really helpful for me because I can happily say that shortly after that, I managed to finally cross that 100,000 mark in savings, which is the first massive milestone which everyone wants to pass when they're trying to be on the road to fire and just being able to look back and say, I actually did that. And I honestly believe I managed to do that was because I had cleared my student loan a lot earlier than other people. Wow. Uh, just a quick congrats on that. That's, that's an amazing achievement. It's, it's not something that I've reached or I'm even close to. And everybody always says the first, the first 100,000 is always the hardest and then kind of compounding takes over. But I just wanted to take a moment to say, it's like, good job. Like it's, it's a hard, hard thing. And it's, you're actually getting the rewards now of all of your efforts up until, up until this point. And being able to save 60% of your salary is amazing. It's again, that's more than I can I can do at the moment, and it's again, it's just testament to your your consistency and uh, the, the lessons kind of you taught taught yourself. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Do carry on. So going back to your original question, fire is absolutely achievable for everybody, and it doesn't matter if you start really late or and kudos to you if you manage to start really early as a junior. That's great, but is. The main point is you have to start now. You can't keep waiting 
for another day or when you feel more ready because time doesn't actually wait for anybody. And so the sooner you start, the more you're doing yourself a favour for the future. And it doesn't even have to be a huge amount that you're saving on each occasion. It just can be a few amounts of change if it has to start with that. And it just gets easier. And I think the main tip about making it easier is on the day your salary comes in, you need to really put a standing order and pay off all your bills and then see what amount you have left in your account. And if you can, I would advise people to put virtually all of that into your savings or invest it and then see if you can live the rest of your month off your overdraft or your credit cards, like Amex card, which gives you over 10 grand overdraft, which you can live off as long as you pay it off every single month. And your overdraft for most banks will give you £500 um, with no extra fees at 0% interest for the first £500. And if you can manage to just manage your finances in that sort of borrowed money area, you can really invest the rest of your money away, which, which is how I've managed to accumulate my 60% savings every month. That's really important as well. And it's an ideal point. So the, I'm always an advocate of paying yourself first. So you've taken care of the the bills to kind of keep your life ticking um, and put a roof over your head and food on your plate. And and then you're paying yourself, you're paying future you um, and kind of thanking you for, for doing all of the hard work. And if it, I think if you leave the money sitting there, um, advertisements are terrible at parting you with your money. Uh, they're very, very good at parting people with money, um, which is terrible for your financial future, uh, good for the other businesses and things. As well, so I think that's a really, a really key point. And if that's the one thing that people take away from this, that they pay themselves first, it's uh, one kind of of the really helpful nuggets of information that we've we've talked about and that come from you. Could you? Um, I know you've, we've talked a little bit uh, over kind of how how you work and uh, the things that you do at the moment. But do you have any any mistakes you've made along the way that perhaps other people can learn from? Absolutely, I have made a ridiculous number. Of blunders over the years with my own finances, which is no one else's fault but my own. But I think the initial few things that come to mind was not asking for financial advice early. So I would have a yearly financial review, but in those reviews, I wasn't always asking the right questions. So I hadn't asked them about my pension. I hadn't asked them really about what sort of savings plan I could use to really pay off my student loan faster. I didn't really ask them the difference at the time between my cash ISA and a stocks and shares ISA. And so I feel as if I've I managed to miss out on maybe up to even 10 years of investments because I sort of left my money sitting in a cash ISA, which is great. Tax free. Interest rates weren't great, but it was, you know, it was just saving something. But had I been much more savvy, I would, I would have actually have moved it into stocks and shares a lot earlier and then had started buying funds years back. And I feel like that would have really have done me a lot better had I made that decision years ago if I had just a balls to go up to someone and ask them to sit down to really explain it to me. Um, because I just felt embarrassed when I was at the financial um, assessments in these sort of reviews of my finances because I felt I've, I'm a student. I'm not earning that much. I don't have much in my pot, so it doesn't look like I I have a lot of assets. But it doesn't mean I don't want to have more assets in the future. And I found a lot of the time the people I was speaking to were almost waiting for me to actually have the doctor title because that almost meant sort of like money bag signs in their eyes where you'd have a guaranteed secure job and then they'd know that you'd, you'd be one of their customers for a lifetime. So I felt as if they were holding back on things that would have benefited me in the long run, which I feel was I'm partly to blame because I, I wasn't advocating for myself enough and I wasn't being more pushy about it. And I think it would have made a difference if if someone had actually said to me verbally, you just need to keep asking around. Then I, I think I probably would have gone back and changed, changed that behaviour. I definitely regret locking my money away in fixed bonds for long periods of time. So you get a high interest rate in a fixed bond, but it, the caveat is you have to lock it away for up to three to five years. And what I realised in hindsight, in that five years, I wasn't able to reinvest those small sums of money. Um, and whilst I thought that the interest rates looked great, 
if someone sold me an interest rate of 3% over five years, I thought, oh, that's great. But when you realize that amount of money, you can't withdraw at any point until the five years are up without a penalty, you realize actually you, you got scammed in a way <laughs> because it's not really within your financial interests to not be able to access money when you could move that money into a place where it will make a bigger profit. Um, so I definitely regret using f- fixed rate bonds for too long. I do regret in some ways also not getting a mortgage earlier on whilst I was studying in London because I've paid rent for so many years. I feel like I've, I've basically poured money down the drain. But now looking at how the housing market is in London, I also don't feel as if it's the best place to get what my money's worth. So for the cost of bricks and mortar to build that flat or an apartment, I don't think it's worth X amount of millions. I just think it's absolutely unacceptable to be asking for anyone to be paying that amount of money just because it's a city. And I believe you can actually earn that amount of money by just basically investing stocks and shares and on stock markets. And so I think you can get a bigger return and your money is more liquid in the sense that you can get hold of it far easier. So if I said I needed to clean up my bank accounts because I'm going to move countries or I wanted to buy a boat as a joke or a new car, I could really access that money fairly easily just by selling off my some stocks and shares and some funds. But if someone said, well, all my money is actually tied up in house and actually because my money is all going into my mortgage repayments and maintenance of this house, I can't buy a car. I don't have any extra money. I have nothing to play with. And it's really hard to sell a house. It's really hard to actually maintain a house when you're working shift work. It's really hard to be a landlord when you don't know if your tenants are going to screw you over. And so whilst people say there are great things about having a house and going into the buy-to-let field, there are a lot of caveats that people don't seem to pay enough attention to. And I think you really have to sit down and know what your risk is and what you're willing to accept because no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And you may be in a situation where you could just lose everything and lose your job. And so your plan has to be there already of what is your backup and what are you going to do next? Because nothing is guaranteed in life. Yeah, definitely. I think you've touched on a lot lot of really pertinent and important points, but just my own opinion on the property thing, a lot of people I think move into the property kind of sector because they think either it's a rite of passage that they have to have somewhere to live and they must own the house. And they also learn from the past where property has been an excellent investment kind of all round. That kind of environment doesn't currently exist anymore in that kind of same flavour. And you're right, houses are not liquid. You can't sell them in, in a day. Sometimes it can take weeks or even months, years perhaps, to, to get the money back out of a property. So I'm, I'm definitely in the same, the same camp. You just, if you do choose buy-to-let properties, you're putting all your money in a single asset class and it's a gamble that somebody will, A, rent it from you and keep it in as good condition as you would keep it yourself. Um, and for me, there's a lot of variables kind of in that and it's not a liquid form of, of, of money. If you say you need, you need to buy something like a boat, perhaps a barge, I don't know if you're going to live on a barge and you need to buy one in a, in a heartbeat, um, really difficult. Um, to do so uh, we're definitely kind of on the same page with with the property kind of angle um so each um each episode we have something called the the resources chest and I've, i'm going to ask you a couple of uh, a couple of things around that so i know obviously you've read loads of books you've read loads of articles websites and things and learned an awful lot along the way have you got a favorite book that stands out to you that you'd recommend to other people so i've a lot of the books that you get on investing are mainly American-based. And if you get to the stage of investing in funds or, and investing in stocks and shares and being an investor of, or a founder of other companies, I think you can't ignore the main book that Warren Buffett actually tells everyone to read, which is Intelligent Investors by Benjamin Graham. To make everyone's life easier, you should probably do what I did and listen to it as an audiobook on YouTube. And the main bits you actually need to, f- to focus on are chapters 3, 8 and chapter 20, which basically go over the investor and the market fluctuations. And they, they talk about stock market, which is the main things you should take away from that particular book. Interestingly enough, I actually found those two British books, which 
I found helpful as a bedtime type reading. One was How to Own the World by Andrew Craig. And it's just a very light read, slightly sceptical read about how, how the UK markets are. But it does, it does explain to people on how to go about building a portfolio. What are asset classes? What are stocks? What's the difference between stocks and bonds and commodities? And I think that's helpful for some people who don't want something too heavy going. On the other hand, if you are someone who just wants to know the definition in a more academic way, I would recommend The Economist's Guide to Investment Strategy. And that's by Peter Stanier. Um, It's by The The Economist. And I found that was a really good go-to guide of breaking down everything I needed to know about finances, but in a, a small, light book form. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's I've, a couple of there I've, I've read. I've read How to Own the World by Andrew Craig. He's, um, he's actually written a follow-up since he released that one, and it's called Live on Less, Invest the Rest. Uh, I think that's an early 2020 publication. So if you did like the first one, the second one's a bit, a bit more of a deeper dive um, as well. So I, I got a lot of value from his first book. I haven't, I haven't read the other one by Peter Stanya, as you mentioned. Um, I'll be sure to pick that up. I'll put links to all the books um, and websites you've mentioned below in the show notes as well. So to anybody listening, you don't have to remember or write all these down. I'll do that for you. There's another book I wanted to just talk to you about, which is called, it's fire focused. It's called Reset and by a chap called David Sawyer, who's a UK based uh, chap as well. So it is, it's financial independence with a UK focus. Uh, so if you haven't read that, I definitely recommend it. So I've, I've listened to it on Audible. It's actually the first ever Audible book I, uh, I I kind of got from them. And I find that really helpful as well. So uh, yeah, possibly it could be useful to you. As we're getting towards the end of the, the episode now, I'm just going to ask you some quick fire questions as we do to everyone. So what's one thing about money that you wish you knew earlier? I wish that someone had sat me down and explained compound interest. It would have made so much difference to the state of my finances now. <laughs> I might have actually retired already had I had I heard of compound interest within your investments ten years ago. Absolutely, that's the it's, one key thing. It's key, isn't it? It's so important, and literally, the earlier you the earlier you learn it, the better. I mean, a lot of people talk about Warren Buffett being a fabulous investor, which he is, but a lot of people ignore. That is actually, he's been investing for 80 something years. He started investing when he was 10 years old, which is un- an unbelievable amount of time to kind of get things right over that. So I think it, it is so important. I, I learned about compounding when I was, was I 29, 30, perhaps. I'm grateful to have learned about it then rather than being 60. But I do wish somebody had talked to me about it when I was kind of 16, 17, uh, that kind of time. Okay, next question. Um, what's been the most valuable financial lesson that, that you've learnt um, from either yourself or, or somebody else? It might be a bit controversial, but surprisingly, the best lessons I actually got was from the staff at the banks that I was banking with. The fact that they would offer a free financial review and I could have one each year, I think that really helped me because I had started off at such a young age that it, it just became a routine part of my sort of life schedule, if that's mm. a way to put it. It's almost yeah. like a milestone or end of year report card. Um, how can you do better next year? How do you feel about it? And I think that really helped because there's no one who can really deal with your finances better than yourself. You could pay a, a financial advisor, you can pay an asset manager, at the end of the day, it's your money. And so the, the only person who's going to have your money in its best interest is yourself. So if you can educate yourself better through the resources around you, whether that's with a bank giving you a financial review each year, I'd say that's great. Definitely. I think it's a good idea to provide some structure and routine. And if it's something that you tell yourself you're going to do every year, then it's, it's kind of set in stone that you'll, you'll know it's coming and you can plan for it. It always reminds me of J.L. Collins and, and his book, The Simple Path to Wealth. He, he writes in there that he, he does his financial review on a day that he can always remember, which is his wife's birthday. So I don't know how she feels about it, but it certainly um, makes sure that he never misses kind of a yearly annual financial review on that part. 
Okay, next one. Um, what's the biggest financial mistake you see other people? Uh, doesn't have to specific, specifically be doctors. So, but what what's the biggest financial mistake uh, you see others making around you? It might sound a little bit controversial to say this, but I found possibly say it and we'll see. <laughs> I basically found that even my closest friends, the main problems they were having was the fact that they they didn't they either didn't know themselves very well or they were not willing to be truthful and genuine about their own habits what makes them tick their shortcomings their addictions you know whether it was whether it was gambling spending too much on clothes drinking too much alcohol not saving at all they were just not honest to themselves um regarding their finances um and i i found that was really difficult to try and help them over the years to try and give them bits of advice because they they were so defensive about how they were managing their finances as it's a big, it's a big part of their life it impacts every every decision that they make whether they can go out whether they can afford a gym membership whether, whether they can ever get a car whether they can actually fuel the car um and i found that it was it was really quite difficult to see them making small mistakes which then grew and grew and grew and it really sort of screwed them over later, and they were completely rectifiable had they just had they just really basically just licked their pride and just had a sit down, and you could just map out their finances and make them a budget. That was probably the biggest financial mistakes that I saw within my friends' circles. Definitely, I th- I agree. It can be very, very difficult to be introspective and look at yourself and where you want to get to and where you're at currently. Um, and working out how to bridge the gap, it often takes some sacrifice, which is is very difficult. So I can appreciate how people struggle kind of with that as well. And I think the what we talk about positive compounding, so we, we compound things in a, in a positive way over time, but also negative decisions, they can compound as well over time and you can end up in a real pickle. Um, yeah, as a on being on the wrong side of compounding. Absolutely. So and on top of that, I would actually want to add Another point, you need to be very careful about who you spend your life with. So in terms of dating, marriage and a spouse, if they don't have any concept on budgeting, saving, building a pot of money for the future, you need to be aware of what debts they bring to the table, whether they're likely to drag you into debt if they're gambling or they have an alcohol problem or, or they're overconfident and they feel that they can just dump money in risky stocks in the market without telling you if you have joint accounts. You need to just be really aware that someone else's finances and their behaviour can really damage your own finances too. And that's something that people aren't willing to say up front when they are within a relationship if they're already in a long-term relationship. And those who are going into new relationships, they're just not willing to have that important talk at the beginning to say, I I need to have I need to have a ground rule to say you know, this is my bank account. Here's our joint account, and we have a separate pot of money for for funds. And you know, we will negotiate what we both defy as fun. Because if I don't drink alcohol and you're drinking a lot of alcohol when you go out, you know, that's you're going to eat into my pot of fun. So, I there should be ground rules on what both parties are expecting from their finances. And whether it's a case of, you know, what is mine is yours, or is it truly a case of, ideally, a, a bigger pot's great. It means that the, we can save more together with joint ISA pooled amounts as a couple, and we can reduce some taxes in other areas because we're now married. It does make a difference if the other person doesn't have as much financial literacy as you. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot, a lot in that. You do need to be careful, but and also the the importance is of finding someone who shares your values, not just in a financial sense, but in in life, really. Because if if you're both um, kind of compatible with with the values that you share, you know you're both on a similar track. Um, it can make things a lot easier. And, and sometimes you do have to have a um, a more difficult conversation uh, with somebody. I'm not saying on date number one or two you have to bring a five years printout of your your bank accounts, spreadsheets, and forecasts, etc. But you do you do need to talk about these things because it will it will have either a positive or a negative impact on 
on all areas of your health, um, be it financial, physical, mental, emotional, uh, it can impact all of them if you're not kind of upfront and open about it. And I think it's a very, it's a very valid point. And thank you for kind of bringing it to the, uh, yeah, to the table. I honestly don't feel that any woman should have to ever feel trapped in any relationships due to financial exploitation. And that's why I'm a very strong advocate for having separate finances because no one should be able to control your life or, or abuse you financially. And part of me feels that if, you, if you're overly trusting to a lot of people, I feel like it can happen because people do change over time. But it's in your best interest to really have your own separate finances just so you can protect yourself, yourself and it's nothing to be ashamed of. If you spent your whole life trying to be completely independent and self-sufficient, there's nothing wrong with protecting that. No, definitely. I agree. And it starts with uh, a good financial knowledge, doesn't it? So if you have the, the, the financial literacy that hopefully we're trying to bring and, and share with people, it can mean if, if they, they do find themselves in a position that they, they want out of, they can A, recognise it and B, know what to do about it to kind of escape um, a problematic situation. So I think it's, it's definitely a, something that I, I'm going to try and educate other people in, share knowledge and kind of make make that not have to happen to to, to some people. Um, so last last question in terms of the the quick fire questions, um, a bit of a whimsical whimsical thing. But if you found ten pounds on the floor um, and someone said you have to give this to charity, uh, which charity would you pick and why? I hands down would give that ten pounds to one of the local parish churches. Throughout the whole current pandemic, they've been feeding the homeless daily in the mornings and evenings whereas every other place has basically shut down and I feel like they've been doing a fantastic job so hands down I'd give the money to the churches. It's really funny you say that I, I do some outreach work at a local homeless shelter which is run by the church and well, not local to me but local to my, my employer um, and you're absolutely right they've been there day in day out open late into the night just to feed um, and clothe and kind of support homeless people through this this pandemic and that's something that's not changed and it's an absolute lifeline for the people that use it so it's a very yeah good choice all, all round. um so we, we've reached the end is, is there anything else dr hung you'd like to mention while uh kind of we're we're talking together or are you, are you happy to leave it at that i think it's worth people really taking into account and knowing when the end of the uk tax year is it makes a huge impact on your taxes and your savings, whether you realise it or not. So the end of the tax year is coming up, 5th, 6th of April. And I, I would absolutely advocate for people, if they can, to completely max out their 20,000 allowance within their ISA. I would tell everyone to just put as much of their savings in to that before the new tax year. And just by moving small amount of money across, I honestly feel that it would just change your mindset so that you can just make a plan for the next coming year of what you're going to do next, how you're going to save, how you're going to reach that goal of reaching X amount of money, whether it's retiring early, whether it's buying a house, buying a new car, paying off your student debt. You know, use, use that end of the tax year date coming as a sort of bookmark in your schedule to say, this is a time I need to sit down and look at my financial life and just see if I can just make me in 10 years time thank myself today for making changes. That's an excellent final point. So doing things today that your future, future you will thank you for doing and just being smart with your money, really using your entire ISA allowance if you can. I know there'll be people uh, who can't. I'm, I, I can't use my entire allowance at the moment, not because I haven't tried. I just don't have the spare, the spare cash for it. I think I fiddled about 30% of my my ice allowance this year and i will based on that kind of last comment from you i will um see in the next week if there's anything spare that i can find and throw throw into my to my ice to kind of really use as much of that allowance as we can dr hang this has been an absolute pleasure for me to kind of uh, speak with you today thank you so much for your time um and for your service for the nhs Re really appreciate it and just yeah thank you for sharing your time with me and allowing me to uh, uh to talk you through this episode so yeah thank you very much Thank you. That's been a pleasure and I, I hope this podcast has helped some people. 
I'm sure it will. Thanks for listening to the Financial Independence UK podcast. We hope you found it useful. If you have any questions or ideas for us, feel free to email at fi.ukpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.